back to InfoTrack. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. A recent study of suicides and drug-related deaths in 2020, so-called Deaths of Despair, has one expert searching for answers with the story. Here's InfoTrack's Roy Mackey. Roy? Thank you, Chris. Our guest is Casey Mulligan, professor of economics at the University of Chicago. Of course, the greatest attention of the past year has been on the huge number of deaths from COVID-19. A less publicized and less understood tragedy is the number of deaths related to what are termed excess deaths of despair. Professor Mulligan, just tell us what would constitute a death of despair. A working definition that's been used in a lot of research would be somebody died from a drug overdose or alcohol poisoning or a suicide And your research indicates that the numbers of these deaths have risen during the pandemic? Yes, they're definitely higher in 2020 than before. There's more to be learned. But 70 to 100,000 deaths of despair in recent years, which has been high compared to years past and also high compared to other countries, population adjusted. And it looks like in 2020, we have tens of thousands more on top of that 70 to 100,000. To put it in percentage terms, you know, I always like more data, but somewhere between 10 and 60 percent more deaths of despair during the pandemic and recession than we had in recent years. Definitive averages are a little hard to come by, but according to the BBC, the average age at death for those who died with COVID-19 in Scotland is 79 for men and 84 for women. How do the demographics of these deaths of despair compare to those who died with COVID? There are very few in the old age groups, very, very few, 85 or older or 75 and older, which is also the pattern we saw in previous years that in those older age groups, you did not see deaths of those types. The deaths of despair in 2020 are disproportionate in, I would call them working age men, ages 15 to 54 years old. Also some in women that age, but more so with the men. And that also fits a pattern that we've seen in previous years where men working age would be disproportionately experiencing those types of deaths. In years past, say in the early 2000s, the gender composition was more similar. But once fentanyl came into our country, it's a big killer. That's quite disproportionately men versus women. You kind of touched on this, but what factors do you think are the most significant to this trend? There are, you know, job losses, money problems, social isolation, or are there other factors? You know, it's really hard to say. Our data is not good enough yet. We will be getting better data in about a year, so we will be able to answer these questions better. It does line up a lot with the deaths of despair in the past, just in a significant addition to those. So, That kind of allows me to back up the question, well, why did we have so many deaths of despair in 2019 or 2018? And a lot of that is drug overdose. Fentanyl is a new thing, at least as a permanent fixture in our uh, drug markets, if we call it that. Fentanyl is fairly new. I get the impression that fentanyl is showing up in markets west of the Mississippi where it really wasn't experienced before. And that's also part of what's going on. There's concerns, and I hear this from people who work in emergency medical services and hospitals, there's concerns that the drug use is being done or people are alone, and that's more dangerous. If you have an overdose and somebody's nearer, they can help you or call for help. 
you're alone, you know, people might not find you for a couple days if it's too late. Our guest on InfoTrack is Casey Mulligan, professor in economics from the University of Chicago. And we're discussing the shocking number of what are termed deaths of despair in America, a trend that's been around for many years but appears to have increased in 2020. Professor, what do you think can be done to address this problem? I think from a government perspective, government could take the log out of its own eye, look at itself and say, what is it doing to fuel this problem and how can we withdraw that fuel? And the government hasn't done that, I can tell you, haven't been there. They don't really have an incentive, I'm afraid, to look at what mistakes they've made that would require an admission, probably a bipartisan admission, which is not going to happen, I'm afraid. Some of the things I think they might find is around law enforcement. Maybe they backed off too quickly, became fashionable about five years ago to say we're not going to fight the war on drugs anymore. The laws are still on the books, but we're not going to fight that war. I think that's what helped fentanyl come into our country. You know, other people might say, you know, we need to allow these types of drugs to be legal. I believe Oregon is trying that now. And I'm skeptical at work, but hey, they're trying it. And we keep an eye on it. And I'm always open to learn, especially in a situation like this. No reason to stick by uh, our opinions without being open to new facts as they come in. When did this whole concept of deaths of despair actually begin? Ten years ago, longer than that? You know, the United States, by international comparisons, has been throughout my lifetime high by international standards on deaths from drug overdose. However, it was fairly constant in the 80s and 90s. When you get to the late 90s, that's when it started rising. Opioids became predominant in that category. And there's some government policies that we can connect to that. The government had this initiative, if you will, that pain should be the fifth vital sign. So anytime you visit a health provider, a hospital, or a doctor, they should ask you about your pain and listen and really not question what the patient says. Unlike the doctor who would measure the heartbeat with the scientific instrument, the pain was supposed to be measured according to what the patient said. And that became government policy. And in fact, it was only removed uh, as a government policy in 2019. So there were taxing doctors who didn't go along with that. And that made for a pretty generous prescription regime. I think that kind of marks the beginning. A lot of events happened since then. But that's where we kind of see the curve turning up and hasn't turned back down really yet. And in terms of 2020, when will we actually know the total death numbers for the United States? Because it seems like that takes a considerable amount of time to actually get that and then be able to compare that to previous years. The death numbers are not so hard. We get those within a few weeks. You know, states and counties track this. You know, the county has a coroner and the death certificate is made out and explaining why the person died. And so the CDC at the national level starts to get that data within a few weeks in terms of numbers of death certificates that were issued. What takes another year or so is for them to gather and standardize those death certificates in terms of what the causes are. It'll be about a year until we have fairly accurate information on not just how many people died in 2020, but what were the causes that the coroner or doctor or hospital noted on the death certificate. Casey Mulligan, professor of economics at the University of Chicago, thank you very much for joining us today. My pleasure. And for InfoTrack, I'm Roy Mackey. You're listening to InfoTrack, a production of Syndication Networks.